Well, it is Transfiguration Sunday, mountaintop experiences. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience where your heart was made strangely warm? But what about literal mountaintop experiences? I know many of you are, are travelers, world travelers, and you've no doubt been on the top of, of some wonderful mountains or some wonderful bluffs. Uh, some of the ones that stick out to me are out in Jackson Hole or some of the mountains in the southwest. Uh, the bluff up at Devil's Lake here in Wisconsin, beautiful. But the one that really sticks out to me is I was on a trip into Germany and we went down to the Zugspitz. And you just take this giant tram seemingly right up into the heavens. And when you get all the way up there, on a clear day, you can see multiple countries all around you, awe-inspiring, these mountaintop uh, experiences. I'd like to be on a mountaintop somewhere warm right now, actually. But the thing about mountains is no matter how stunning and amazing they are, no matter how awesome the experience is, eventually, you're going to need to come back down that mountain. You see, we need to return to our work. We need to return to our people. We need to return to our mission, to return to our purpose. And so I want to take this story, which we have heard read to us through Scripture, and so beautifully told the whole story again through that, that gift of song. I want to explain it. Before I make application for how it's relevant to us right here in 2021, to be faithful to this text, we need to understand, we need to hear it the way Mark's audience would have heard it right then in that first century. You see, there were some events that took place prior. As Andrea was reading, the very first words were six days later, which means something just happened six days prior. That's kind of how Scripture works that way. And what happened six days prior is that Jesus is with His disciples, and He asks a very simple question. Who do people say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? And it's always Peter. I kind of am going to date myself just like Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotter. Ooh, 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 I know, I know. You're the Messiah. But Peter doesn't really understand what that means. Yes, the Messiah. But he doesn't get it. Because once being named Messiah, Jesus then speaks of what's going to have to happen. Speaks of God's plan. That there's going to be suffering. There's going to be rejection. Betrayal. Death. And resurrection. And Peter doesn't want any part of that. Peter is really enjoying this great ride with all these folks. And so listen to the chutzpah of Peter. Peter, we are told in Scripture, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. That's dangerous territory right there. And he's rebuking him. But, but Jesus says, Peter, stop it. You don't get it. Get behind me. Peter, you're seeing it from a very human point of view. What we're about, what this mission is about, is about something that God is up to, something that God has planned. You just don't get it, Peter. And so then the very next encounter, we're up on top of this mountain. You would think Peter, when he viewed what he viewed, would, would get it, but he's, he still doesn't. 
Now, up on the mountain, Jesus used to go up to the mountain on a regular basis. It was a common practice for Jesus to go up. We think of the Sermon on the Mount and that powerful foundational teaching. We think about the time on the Mount of Olives and other mountaintop experiences, which I think is why when we have our real uh, moments of God encounters, we talk about them as being mountaintop experiences. Now, throughout Scripture, and even to this day, God's people have gone up to the top of mountains to have encounters that are different than what we can have down on the plain or the level places or in the valley. We're introduced in the story to two individuals, Moses and Elijah. And we know that these two spiritual giants, they too had powerful encounters with God on mountaintops. It is on top of a mountain when Moses experiences God coming, saying, you know, you're going to be the one who's going to lead this exodus. And such a powerful mountaintop experience that was that when he came down, his face shone so brightly he had to wear a veil. Elijah, up on top of the same mountain, encountered God, not in, in miraculous things, but in a still small voice. Or as some translations say, reading that Hebrew in sheer silence, powerful encounter with God. You know, we would call those epiphanies, each of them having an epiphany experience with the Creator God, but now they're up there and they're going to have an experience with Jesus. Now, it's very important for the people who heard Mark's gospel that first century that it was Moses and Elijah because what they represent Moses represents the supreme giving of the law. To him, the nation owed the laws of God. And as for Elijah, he was the first and the greatest of the prophets. Elijah was the mouthpiece for God, the one who brought the very voice of God. These two figures, a lawgiver and a mouthpiece for God, are basically passing the torch, handing the baton, Go on, Jesus, going on. It meant that they saw in Jesus the consummation of all that they had dreamed of in the past. All the human longing for the Messiah. Everything we had looked to. And it was as if at that moment Jesus was assured that he's on the right way. Because all of history has been leading to the cross. Leading to the cross. Moses and Elijah. And the fact that they disappear before this, this uh, time is done says that the old has ended and the new has come. The old has disappeared. The old is done. God is up to something new. There's something else that Mark's audience would have heard in this. Elijah, we are told, was taken directly to heaven directly to God without dying. And there was a legend that because we're not really told where Moses was buried, that God actually took Moses directly to heaven as well. Moses and Elijah both worked miracles. They both opposed the powers of the world. And so all of the law and the prophets were represented in these two. And so to Jesus... So too, Jesus opposed the power structures of the world. And just like Moses and Elijah, who suffered for their faith and commitment, were vindicated by God, so too would Jesus ultimately be vindicated through resurrection. But I want to explore Peter. I wonder what Mark's audience thought about Peter. 
You know, Mark kind of gives Peter a pass. Luke's telling of this story has Peter falling asleep once again on a mountaintop where something spectacular is happening. But when Peter sees this, he says, let's build tents. Now, to a first, uh, to a 20, in people in 2021, we don't have no idea what, what the significance of that is. It was kind of an homage to the Feast of the Booths, a feast that remembers Israel's deliverance deliverance and he wants to stay here with them tents the tabernacle was was a tent and to this day during that celebration orthodox jews still build booths or tents as i mentioned jesus or peter knew how to say messiah but didn't know what it means he didn't like what jesus said but this was really cool what was happening up on top of that mountain and he wanted to capture it forever But then comes a cloud, and from the cloud, a voice. In Jewish thought, the presence of God is regularly connected with a cloud. It was in the cloud that Moses met God. It was in the cloud that God came to the tabernacle. It was the cloud which rifled the temple when it was dedicated after Solomon had built it. And it was the dream of faithful Jewish people that when the Messiah came, the cloud of God's presence would indeed return to the temple. The descent of this cloud in this moment of transfiguration is a way of saying the Messiah has indeed come. And the educated Jewish people would have certainly understood that. This cloud takes hearers back to Mount Sinai and cloud parting at ascension. But there is this voice in the cloud. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Now, when Mark talks about the baptism, there was a voice that came, but it was only speaking to Jesus. You are my son. Listen to him. There was a fantastic movie that came out a few years ago of a of a single father who was trying to raise his daughter who was a genius. And she was really trying to make sense of everything. And and she started to question about Jesus. And so she said, you know, Dad, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, Jesus, I love that guy. Do what he says. I love that guy. Do what he says. And that's what this voice is saying to Peter and to the others. This is my son, the chosen one, the beloved one. Do what he says the fulfillment, I am in the world. And so that's what the first century would have heard. But I promise we want to make some some application for our lives right here, right now in 2021. And so the first thing we really need to explore is transfiguration itself. What does it mean? To be transfigured is to have a great change of form or, a, of a, or appearance, especially a change that beautifies, glorifies, and makes more spiritual. Boy, wouldn't it be great if after hearing every one of my sermons, you would all be transfigured, that you would be more beautiful, that there would be more glory, that you would be more spiritual? Our founder, John Wesley, just really tried to get into the Greek word of this to to refer to the form of God, these divine rays, the indwelling of God that, that God let out on this occasion made a glorious change from one form to another, a more divine figure, in essence to say no longer of this world. 
transfiguration, to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. Now, this word for transfiguration is only used in the New Testament two times outside of this story. And the first comes from a time and a text that we're very familiar with, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which reads, Do not be conformed to this world. And don't we all want to dress so that we look like everyone else, drive the same kind of car as everyone else, have the same kind of homes as everyone else? But here it is saying, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transformed, transfigured by the renewing of your minds so that you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect to shine brightly, to shine brightly as a child of God. But the other time it's used is in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And it reads this way, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as through reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Friends, I I really believe that we've all had moments of transfiguration. I think the problem is we don't know how to name it or maybe even recognize that we have had this, this transformation, this transfiguration mountaintop experience in our lives. And suddenly, sometimes it seems only fleeting. So yes, we understand what transfiguration is, but but the second thing I really want to kind of address is there's something about us that we all seek mountaintop experiences. We're all looking for that moment where it's all so real to us, where the glory of God just completely surrounds us. Many people have undergone quests for visions and or revelations in all cultures, in all expressions. Even to this day, people still seek this experience, but our glimpses come from being faithful in and with the ordinary. All around us, transfiguration can happen. Now, only a few have had this kind of experience. Ordinary people like us have experiences that sometimes we cannot explain, moments in which we we have felt God's presence, moments when the nature of God becomes clear to us in ways that transcend our ordinary experiences. And sometimes it's really hard to put those kind of experiences into words. Sometimes we don't dare speak it into words because we're afraid that someone else is going to think that we are crazy. But thank God for testimony of transfiguration moments. And so Deborah Kern is going to share with us uh, one such moment that she had at a pivotal uh, time in her journey of life. Did you ever feel the need to catch up upon entering a first job or a new job? Did you ever recognize all the things that you weren't taught and then put all your energy into catching up at all costs? At all costs? Yes. Without even knowing you were eliminating necessary elements in your life which were life-giving? Putting all your eggs in one basket? Well, I did all this. This is my transformation story during my first year with the Milwaukee Ballet Company in the 1977 through 78 season. Back in those days, I worked 
seven days a week, I had no time or energy to renew myself through play. See, we were all busy and tired at the end of the day and went home and went to bed and got up and repeated things the next day. I was catching up and was consumed with all things ballet. By spring, which was the end of my first contract, I had become an isolated, anxious, scared, lonely, and confused 19-year-old and went to New York for what became my annual pilgrimage to catch up on all things ballet. I felt I was feeling better when I went there, but I brought all my baggage, including all my eggs, in that one basket. And it wasn't too long before each egg, one by one, fell out and broke. I was empty. I was broken. And I'd become even more anxious, clawing at life and people to give me relief, to help me and to save me. I had truly lost my way and even began to wonder if life was worth living. That scary thought, and with that scary thought, I recognized I needed to do something. And I found my way back to the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church I had attended the previous year. And I would also, at this point, want to thank my parents who are in heaven for bringing me up in the church because that one thought of God made all the difference for me. So I attended this church service, and there was one last seat that was left, and I took it. The sermon was on love, and during that sermon I found myself recognizing that I hadn't given love, received love for almost a year. So after the service, Grace and George Schultz, the couple I was sitting next to, invited me for coffee hour. It was the first caring act I'd felt in months. We talked briefly, and they gave me their phone number. After coffee, I left church, still confused, anxious, lonely, and feeling like my ulcer was getting worse. I walked up Fifth Avenue a little bit. There was a parade passing by, going down Fifth Avenue in the wrong direction, and I stopped. I had hit my bottom. I had hit it really badly. In my head, I cried out, oh God, I don't care what I have to do. I will give up my dance career. Just help me. At that moment, I felt a shot of electricity from the top of my head through the tips of my toes and was slowly being transformed inside. The anxiety, fear, helplessness, isolation, and what I thought was an ulcer lifted. I had been saved by God's saving love. And I could see clearly all I needed, which was to give love, God's love, and what I didn't need in my life. And it wasn't until later that I realized three things. One, I'd been internally transformed by love, by God's powerful, everlasting love. I also realized that Sunday, June 4th, 1978, was Pentecostal Sunday. And wondered about that flash of what I called electricity and power in my body. And the third thing I realized was we should always invite people for coffee, coffee hour no matter where, because God's love might be transforming people through our caring actions of an ask, asking to go to coffee. 
I am forever grateful for my mountaintop experience, even though I went through hell to get there. And I praise you, glorious God, for helping me remember and share my experience, my mountaintop experience and my coming down and sharing it with people of this congregation and elsewhere. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Deborah. Sometimes to get to the mountaintop, you got to go through hell to get there. And maybe some of you are feeling right now the way Deborah felt, unloved, almost not even capable to extend love beyond yourself because you were so depleted. This felt need we have to be loved and to extend love, which is possible through this Christ, this Messiah who was transfigured before the eyes of those disciples. And so we've understood what, this, what transformation is. We, we, we've understood uh, the, the touch that we've all had. But the final thing what I want to leave you with today is, and I hope you're still listening, we all must come down the mountain and do the work. I remember Bill Easton, a longtime member here at the United Methodist Church of Whitefish Bay, quite an adventurer, real outdoorsman, loved to ski. He was a mountain climber. And at his service of death and resurrection, his celebration of life, there were pictures of him hiking up mountains. And Ron Crawl was our pastor uh, visiting our, our shut-ins at that time. And Bill shared with him just a couple weeks before he passed that in Bill's mind, it was always much harder to climb down a mountain than to climb up a mountain. And we think, wait a minute, that, that shouldn't be that way. Why is it harder to come down the mountain? Well, it's anticlimactic. Gravity is going the wrong way. There's no eyes on the bottom of your feet. For anyone who's had to walk down after walking up, using all kinds of muscles you don't get to use in your day-to-day -day life. But friends, there's goals that we set to go up. There's not really any goals for coming back down. What if our goal every time we came down the mountain was to share that love, that, that bright light, to allow it to shine through us? Yes, climbing up, we're motivated and encouraged to reach a point, but once you reach that point and start climbing down, you feel a bit unmotivated. You're leaving a place that held many, many memories, but I'm telling you, be motivated to share those experiences from the mountaintop. Peter did not like what Jesus had to tell him and was reluctant even to consider it. But in this text, he is so enthused about the mountaintop experience, he wants to capture it forever. But Peter, you cannot. You must not. Peter, just like all of us, needs to get back to the mission, back to the purpose, back to people, back to ministry, even if we don't fully understand it. You see, the work at the foot of the mountain can actually lead us to even more mountaintop experiences. Pastor Janet shared with me a, a Nelson Mandela quote that said, There is no easy walk to freedom anywhere, and many of us will have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death again and again before we reach the mountaintop of our desires. As Deborah said, to get to her mountaintop, she had to walk through hell. And so as Pastor Andrew was conveying to our children this morning, what we experience at church in our Bible's higher world, because this voice came from heaven and said, this is my son. 
the chosen one, the beloved one, listen to him. And friends, these are still the right words. You see, Jesus lived and modeled our perfect life. Look to it and live it. Jesus, I love that guy. Do what he says. Allow the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount to be the foundation of your lives. And so I end this message with this. As we approach this season of Lent, let us journey down the mountain and start toward the cross, toward the empty tomb. Let us listen to Jesus and engage in the works to which he calls. To that I say, amen, which means may it be so.